Welcome to the show, Alan. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, for people maybe that are living under a rock or maybe not not aware, what what is it that you're that you're into at the moment? What what what's your your area of expertise at the moment? Well, I'm the director of the True North Health Center in uh, California, and for the past 36 years, we've been involved in medically supervised water-only fasting. So we have patients come in with conditions like high blood pressure, diabetes, autoimmune disorders, uh, cancers like lymphoma, and we'll have them go on a water-only fast for periods of five to 40 days. Uh, and then we follow that with a whole plant food SOS-free type of diet. And we document the outcomes and publish those results in peer-reviewed journals. We're a 501c3 nonprofit research-based organization that's been successful at showing that fasting and diet can be very helpful in giving the body a chance to do what it does best, and that's heal itself. Heal itself. Absolutely. I'm a, I'm a massive advocate for fasting. I've been actually, I think a few of my Facebook friends have unfriended me actually because I've, I've been a bit too um, a bit too aggressive pushing it out. But uh yeah, I, I think is I just want to start off with a question. Is there any research that correlates living longer with fasting? Well, you know, when we talk about living longer, there's really two things we should talk about. Life extension, uh, that is life expectancy, and also healthy life expectancy. So life expectancy is the number of years a person born today is expected to live on average. Healthy life expectancy is how long a person born today is expected to live healthy, fully functional, capable of taking care of themselves, not finding themselves unable to talk or move, lying in nursing home beds, waiting to have people change their diaper. And so how long you live uh, is largely determined by genetics and luck. How well you live in the years you have is largely determined by diet and lifestyle choices. So what we really should be focusing on is the things we can have the biggest impact on, which is healthy life expectancy. How, what can we do? How can we eat? How can we live so that we end up spending all of our years fully functional, healthy, and happy rather than uh, necessarily focus on doing something that you really can't do, which is change maximum life expectancy. Everybody, when they're born, has a maximum life that they could live. Uh, you can shorten it. You can become debilitated, but you're not going to necessarily change the basic uh, maximum life expectancy. And I think we have evidence to prove that. You know, of the 100 billion modern humans that have been born on the planet, we have well-documented evidence that five people have lived past 117. And, you know, one of those is really questionable. So, you know, the fact is your odds of living past 117 right now are probably about one in 20 billion. Uh, and that's with people that have applied all kinds of different diet and lifestyle uh, formulations in their, in their existence. So, I think that we should really realize that where we're going to have the biggest impact on the choices that we make is on how well we live in the years that we have. And there's overwhelming evidence that people that choose to eat a health-promoting diet and adopt a health-promoting lifestyle have a dramatically lower uh, likelihood of debility. I mean, if you look at the most common causes of debility, uh, heart attack, stroke, autoimmune disorders, conditions like lymphoma, these conditions debilitate people years before they die, and they are largely preventable. <clears throat> Excuse me. Right. I was reading one of your studies. Uh, you had a you had a, a young woman come in with, uh, she had lymphomic nodes, and which was quite interesting, and 
did the I, I didn't I didn't get the outcome of that study. I didn't get the outcome of that result. But my understanding was that the fasting, the protocol of fasting, actually uh, reduced the size of the the cancerous nodes. Uh, um, it was an interesting case. This was a young uh, woman in her forties who came in with uh, <clears throat> diagnosed follicular lymphoma stage three. She had had excisional biopsy and been well monitored. And it continued to progress. Yeah. And uh, underwent 21 days of fasting, during which time her tumor, palpable tumors, completely disappeared. Uh, X ray, uh, uh, CT scan showed a dramatic reduction. And then she was followed uh, for a period of three years, uh, during which time the condition continued to improve. And at three years, uh, was completely cancer free. And we published the case report and the three-year follow-up in the British Medical Journal case reports, and people can go onto our website at healthpromoting.com and actually download the article and, and see for themselves uh, what the outcome and long-term uh, results are. In fact, I've continued to track that particular patient. She continues to do well. And we've had a number of patients since that case was reported with lymphoma that also continue to do uh, apparently well, and we're tracking them and plan to publish some other long-term case reports. Ultimately, we'd like to do a clinical trial. Uh, to show uh, just what happens when you do nothing intelligently, which is essentially fasting, uh, compared to natural <laughs> treatment. Um, the fact is the body's able to heal itself from a whole lot more things than people realize. But the reason it's not is because we're not doing the things that allow the body to heal itself, and that's uh, put a health-promoting diet and lifestyle in place. And in our case, we're using long-term water-only fasting to give the body a chance to make those changes more quickly. And you... So the water fast, the water only fasting is is obviously water only. But um, <laughs> so, I mean, that's that must be a shock to some people to hear that. I mean, they must just think, "What is going on here?" With, well, most um, people hear about fasting. They've read books like the Bible, where Moses, David, Elijah, and Jesus fasted for up to forty days. So, in addition to Moses, David, Elijah, and Jesus, also our patients fast up to forty days. I've had people ask me if we also teach them how to part the Red Sea. And I tell them that's all in the wrist. <laughs> oh, well, that's an ancient practice that we've applied to modern problems. And the modern problems that we're seeing today that kill most of the people prematurely are things like heart disease, including high blood pressure, cardiovascular disease in general, type 2 diabetes, autoimmune diseases like lupus and rheumatoid arthritis, ulcerative colitis, and asthma, eczema, psoriasis, this whole class of conditions where the body's immune system becomes confused and attacks our cells, and conditions, as I mentioned, like lymphoma. These conditions are all associated with dietary excess. Um, okay. And, and you know, also even acute diseases like COVID-19, if you look at who's dying with COVID-19, one of the risk factors is metabolic syndrome. So if you have obesity and diabetes and uh, cardiovascular disease, your likelihood of dying from that or other infectious diseases is much higher than if you don't have those conditions. And so um, it's not shocking to find out that since dietary excess is the cause of many of these conditions, uh, that fasting is kind of the ultimate way of undoing the consequences of dietary excess. Uh, you know, weight loss is a pound a day. The body has to utilize the reserves that are there. It does it very effectively and efficiently. And we've proven in the safety study that we published that it can be done safely. Uh, fasting is a safe and effective process when it's done in a controlled environment um, in appropriately selected patients and is monitored properly. And that's one of the things I want to emphasize. Long-term water-only fasting needs to be done properly or like many other interventive procedures, it can become a problem. 
And so the way we avoid the problem is history, exam, lab, and proper monitoring. That needs to be done in a controlled setting, and that's why we do that. But, you know, it's not uh, just weight loss that's associated with uh, fasting. There's many things that are changed with fasting. For example, uh, glucose and insulin uh, go down with uh, insulin resistance goes down with fasting. Um, so uh, when you have people that have diabetes, essentially diabetes is not a problem of insulin. It's a problem of insulin working. There's insulin resistance. And so blood sugar levels go up because insulin is not able to carry blood into the cells where it's needed to carry on its functions. Yeah. Well, fasting reduces insulin resistance and, and it normalizes insulin production. And so what happens with diabetics, most type 2 diabetics are able to achieve normal blood sugar levels without the use of medication. Um, fasting affects things like uh, insulin growth factor one. Walter Longo and others have done a lot of research uh, initially on rats, now on humans, that shows that fasting affects uh, biomarkers like insulin growth factor one. And the lower your insulin growth factor one is, uh, the lower your uh, mortality rates are. Leptin uh, is another thing uh, that we know that when you use fasting, leptins reduce, reduced leptin is associated with a reduced inflammation. Turns out inflammation is like a major risk factor for most diseases. Yeah. Cardiovascular disease, all these diseases that we're having, many of them are associated with increased inflammatory factors. The objective measures of inflammation go down in fasting, whether it's neutrophil, um, uh, 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 excuse me, whether it's uh, uh, factors like lectin and a whole bunch of other biomarkers are now associated with changing with fasting. Like mTOR, um, the mammalian target of uh, rampomycin, goes down and the lower your mTOR, the higher is your autophagy. And autophagy is how the body goes in there and eats up these cancer cells and gets rid of the cellular debris and kind of cleans house. And so increased autophagy turns out to be really important at getting and staying healthy. In fact, yeah. in uh, 2016, a guy named uh, Yoshinori Oshimi won the Nobel Prize in Medicine for his work on showing just how important autophagy was. So anything that's increasing autophagy apparently is thought to be associated with improving health. And fasting has a profound effect apparently on autophagy. The microbiome uh, in your gut, the five pounds of bacteria that live in your intestinal tract that provide such an important part of your protection. And that the balance of that microbiome, very important to maintaining health and resistance to disease and other problems. I just, I just, so, 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 sorry, Alan. I just want to interject there. Um, I just, just with the, 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 I'm just curious about the 40 day fasts. I just want to learn a little bit more about that. What's been the outcome of, of the 40 day fasts and what's been the response with the patients? Well, fasting ranges from five to 40 days, depending on the patient's reserves and the application. For example, the woman with, um, with, uh, uh, lymphoma fasted for 21 days. So, the, how long you can fast is, can be limited by your reserves. Yep. You know, if you have enough fuel on board, it can be limited by your electrolytes. It can be limited by uh, psychological uh, tolerances, et cetera. So you don't know exactly how long that fast is going to be until you see how you respond to fasting. In the case of blood pressure, we fast until blood pressure is normal or until reserves become limited. And we're monitoring things like potassium and electrolytes and other kinds of variables to make sure that we go too long. If you're fasting and you keep going, longer than your reserves, then you it changes from fasting to starvation. And we don't want to do starvation because starvation results in death. And death it really screws up your clinical outcome data. It's, it disrupts all of our, our, our data. So we good. are very careful not to do starvation. 
In fact, we're so careful that in 36 years and over 20,000 patients going through medically supervised fasting, everybody that's been walked in uh, has been able to walk out and we try to keep it that way. We're really uh, particular about that. In fact, we've published a fasting safety study showing uh, exactly what, what the adverse events can be and are and, and, and what those outcomes are. And as you see in that data, you know, we were able to go five years uh, without any mortality and very little in the way of uh, morbidity. It's, you know, it is a natural biological adaptation. And so when it's used in appropriately selected patients, it can be done consistently, reliably, and safely. And, and it's 40 day fast, up to 40 days. We don't go over 40 days. And you, so you mentioned the difference between starvation and fasting. How do you differentiate between the two? Well, as a person's going through the process at the Trunor Health Center, we're monitoring them twice a day. So our staff doctors are taking vitals, examining the patients, looking at their blood and urinalysis. And so there's a number of variables that we can utilize to ensure that the person uh, is still in the fasting mode and not has not entered into that starvation mode. Uh, one of the most obvious things is just, you know, how much uh, reserves a person has. We don't fast people, for example, when BMIs uh, go much below 16. You know, we're looking at their uh, percent body fat, their, their uh, protein reserves, their uh, blood levels, their urine levels, and their clinical presentation. You know, interestingly okay. enough, even when patients are on very long-term fast, they generally are functioning quite well. If a person becomes too weak or has stability issues, then, of course, we would transition from fasting into, into refeeding which has to be done very carefully because with long-term fasting, one of the great dangers is too rapid realimentation, too rapid refeeding can result in conditions like refeeding syndrome or other problems that can become seriously damaging or fatal. And so to avoid that, you have to have an appropriate protocol, which we do. So for, you know, it takes half the length of the fast to properly refeed. And that's also done in a controlled setting. Uh, there's a tendency for people to make poor decisions when they haven't eaten for weeks on end and the tendency for overeating uh, always is a problem, but it's particularly a problem after long-term fasting. Okay. Okay. And what about uh, like for, for the, for the average individual at home, do you recommend, let's say they, they want to start fasting. Uh, is, is there a protocol that they should follow or they're interested? What, what yeah, would you Everybody fast at home every day for 16 hours and that they feed during an eight-hour feeding window if weight loss is their goal. If weight gain is their goal, they may need to narrow their uh, fasting window to 12 hours a day and allow 12 hours of feeding just to be able to have enough time to get enough low caloric density, high-nutrition food in their diet to maintain optimum weight. So but the point is everybody fasts every day, and they break that fast in the morning with a breakfast and that first meal. That's why they call it break fast, because you're breaking that evening fast. All we're suggesting is that for people trying to lose weight, sometimes extending that a period of fasting to 16 hours can be good. You still don't get involved in gluconeogenesis and other protein breakdown issues as long as you don't let that window go beyond about 16 hours because you have enough glycogen stores to carry through your function. Um, right. Some people also suggest that exercising in the morning before you break that fast may actually maximize fat burning. Uh, and so then you feed during an eight hour period, but you limit your feeding to a whole plant food SOS free diet. SOS is the international symbol of danger, but it also stands for the chemicals that we put in food that make us fat, sick, and miserable. And those chemicals that fool the satiety mechanisms in our brain that, that, that create the pleasure trap, those chemicals for humans are salt, oil, and sugar. Salt, oil, and sugar are not food. They are highly fractionated food byproducts that are added back to food in order to stimulate dopamine in our brain. And that's what leads to the overeating, and that's why two-thirds of the population are overweight or obese. 
because we use those chemicals. If you eliminate those chemicals, whether it be from humans or rats or animals, you find they go back and maintain normal weight. They can eat to satiety, maintain normal weight, but the, it, the, those chemicals fool us. There's going to be a bit of a backlash on this podcast because uh, I love a bit of chips with salt, so um, I know... <laughs> it's dopamine in your brain and dopamine is the chemical associated with pleasure we love it absolutely yeah. love it because your brain is designed to make sure you survive and survival in a natural setting that is the setting of uh, uh deprivation that we evolved in means get enough to eat and don't get eaten and if you can't push everybody else out of the way to make sure you get yours your ancestors were the ones that got enough to eat and didn't get eaten they survived that boat ride for all you know they ate everybody else but whatever they did they survived and that's how your brain is designed. Get enough to eat, eat the most concentrated food available. And there's not much stuff more concentrated than things like um, fried chips with you know, oil at nine calories per gram, uh, along with highly concentrated coagulated cow pus like cheese and these kind of things. So absolutely you'll love it, but it has a drug-like effect. It's like you, love, you may love the effect of cocaine too, but that doesn't make it good. And because it's a drug-like effect. That's essentially the essence of the book that we've written called The Pleasure Trap, Mastering the Hidden Force that Undermines Health and Happiness. When you realize the effect that these chemicals have on your brain, everything starts to make sense. Everything you see around you starts to become predictable and understandable. People are overweight because they eat these chemicals added to the food. People will develop metabolic syndrome. Then they become susceptible to the diseases of dietary excess that used to be called the diseases of kings because it was only the kings that developed the gout and the cardiovascular disease and the diabetes, because they were the only ones that could afford to eat the highly processed foods that make us fat, sick, and miserable. Well, I can feel your passion coming through the, uh, the, uh, the microphone here. Um, I mean, but it's, it's, but that, this is the thing, right? I mean, as humans, we've, 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 we've drawn to that comfort, that, 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 that easy meal. And, it, it, how do we reverse that? I mean, this is going to be a, it, it's, it's a monstrous task ahead of us. I mean, no question. It's not just humans, though. It's all animals. If you give rats, for example, access to the foods that we eat, uh, the salt, oil, and sugar, you put that into their rat child, they'll gain 49% of their body weight in 60 days. And it's not stress. I mean, it's not because mommy rat didn't love them enough or daddy rat loved them too much. It's because, and it's not because they had to go to work. It's because they fooled the brains of the rats with these chemicals, and it works in humans too. It works so well that two-thirds of people have achieved the exalted state of being overweight or obese. In fact, if you're not overweight, you're quite abnormal in society today because normal people or average people are overweight and have these diseases of dietary excess. Okay. So, of course, it's going to be over. It's going to be the most difficult thing most people will ever do in their life. That is, achieve optimum weight and health in a world designed to make you fat, sick, and miserable. The world's designed to give you what you want, what, not what you need. And what you want is to get as many calories as possible with as least effort as possible. That's, that's how you're designed. Because in an, in an environment of scarcity, that's who survives. The people that can detect calorically dense foods and value those greater than low caloric dense foods. For example, if you loved salad and all you ate was salad, a salad has 100 calories a pound, you would have to consume 20 pounds a day just to survive. And you can't do that. If you start at 6 a.m. and you eat nonstop till midnight, it's hard to get 20 pounds in, even if you could find it. 
And so your brain recognizes salad as food, but it's not like excited about it. I mean, it's like, okay, fine, I'll have some salad you know, until something really comes along. On the other hand, you know, fruit has 300 calories a pound. It's three times the pork density. You, you know, you'd still be a full-time job, but you could live on fruit. Seven pounds a day, you'd get enough calories. On the other hand, potatoes, rice, and beans, that is heat processed starchy vegetables have 500 calories a pound. Way more valuable in terms of the ability to get enough to eat to sustain your bulbous neuronal net, which is your biggest uh, burner of glucose. It's the brain. The reason humans had to develop the use of heat to process their food was because they needed higher caloric density to maintain a, a brain that burns so much glucose. And so uh, the more concentrated complex carbohydrates, more valuable to you, taste better to you. And then if you add sugar, oil, and salt to them, oh my gosh, now we're in heaven. You know, bread has 15 calories a pound before you turn it into a butter boat and put coagulated cow pus on it. Um, things like chocolate have 2,500 calories a pound. I mean, 25 times the value of salad, and it tastes 25 times better to people. It does. Yeah. Chocolate or salad, they can tell the difference. And so the point is your brain is just trying to get you as much calories as it can. And so that's what good taste is, is more dopamine production. And the higher the caloric density, the more dopamine. So the higher the caloric density of the food, the chips have a lot. And listen, when they say, bet you can't just eat one uh, uh, potato chips, they're not kidding. Because it has three to five times the caloric density that your, your steamed potato does. So it tastes better. It is better as far as your survival is concerned in an environment of scarcity. The reason it gets to be a problem is in our modern environment, you can get enough to eat and not get eaten and never get, never get off the couch. There's so much highly processed fractionated foods available, and our brains are saying, yeah, give it to me, uh, that we do. And so even when we're trying to control ourselves, we can't. At least two-thirds of us can't. And it's, actually, they're not overweight. Many of them, it's because they have pathology. It's not because they're not eating processed foods. Is, is there any practical advice that you can give for people at home listening Maybe they're struggling with their weight and, and maybe they just, they, they want to, yeah. So one, don't eat um, 16 hours a day, fast 16 hours a day. Don't eat three hours before you go to sleep at night. So you have your last meal at whatever time it is. You, you get at least three hours of time before you go to sleep. You sleep your eight hours. You delay your breakfast in the morning so that you have an eight hour feeding window and a 16 hour fasting window. During the eight hours that you're feeding, limit yourself exclusively to whole plant foods. So fruits, vegetables, grains, legumes, nuts, and seeds. Avoid animal foods and highly processed fractionated foods, particularly oil, salt, and added oil, salt, and sugar. You get all the sugar you need from, and that is carbohydrate from your whole plant foods. You get all the essential fats you need from a, a variety of whole plant foods, and you get all the sodium you need from a, a vegetable-rich diet. You don't need to add these things. If you do that, and you're a male, you're gonna lose around three pounds a week down to optimum weight. If you're a female, you're gonna lose about two pounds a week down to optimum weight, assuming you get moderate exercise and you're not drinking alcohol and other high caloric uh, beverage uh, uh, con uh, contaminants. And that's very predictable. You know, In a controlled setting like a True North, people lose weight just a pound a day fasting, two to three pounds a week uh, feeding, eating large quantities, whole plant foods. It works very well. It works very consistently. The women lose weight slower than the men because they have estrogen. Estrogen is a fat storage hormone. If you inject men with estrogen, they grow breasts and get hips. If you inject women with testosterone, they lose fat, but get hearing, and get cancer and die. So probably not a good strategy for weight management. But the point is these differences are biological, not psychological. 
So if you're a woman, what does that mean? It means you have to work twice as hard, you get half the results, so you have to get used to it. If you're a man, you can still be fat, but you have to be more disciplined in order to maintain obesity. If you're eating a whole plant food diet, you're gonna lose your weight. But doctor, what if I what if I want to eat that chocolate bar, you know, every now and again? I mean, surely right. there's a there's, well, there's a bit of Absolutely, you just have to say how fat and sick do I want to be? If you don't mind being a little bit fat and sick, then you just have a little bit. And if you don't mind being really overweight and really sick, then you have all you want. And the problem is some people can have a little bit and not get into trouble. For example, everybody that drinks alcohol doesn't become an alcoholic. So if you're a person that can have a drink and then you don't think about it, it's not a problem. Maybe, you know, you might be able to get away with that. But if you're an alcoholic, it's not you. Because if you could have limited your intake, you would have. Some people can have a chocolate bar and not think about it for a month. Other people have a chocolate bar. That's all they can think about is getting another chocolate bar. If you can't control quantity, if you know that because you're overweight. If you're overweight, you're not the person that's doing a good job at regulating how much of these highly concentrated fractionated drug-like effect foods you're eating. So stop it. Just like you don't tell alcoholics, just drink beer and wine because it doesn't work. Don't tell overweight people, well, you can have a little bit of chocolate and a little piece of that. And, you know, you don't tell alcoholics, well, look, you're a drunk. So the problem is don't drink so much. Push yourself away from the bar. Put your alcohol in a smaller cup and drink your alcohol with a spoon and put your spoon down between each sip and you won't be a drunk anymore. What do you tell an alcoholic? You need to stop drinking. You need a strategy each and every day that allows you to not drink. And it's difficult. It's not easy to get out of the pleasure trap with alcohol. When, if you have overweight patients, you don't tell them, well, eat, eat less. Put your food on a smaller plate. Put your fork down between each bite. Now you won't be obese anymore. It doesn't work. What works is say, eat so much fruit, salad, steamed vegetables, there's not much room left for anything else. And avoid the heated, treated, chopped, processed, dead, decaying flesh foods that are making people fat and sick. If they do that as an experiment, they find, oh, it works. It works predictably. It's safe. They get their nutrients. And then at some point they might say, okay, I've reached my optimum weight and health. What can I get away with? Well, if you want to do that, that's fine. You decide what you are or aren't able to tolerate. Mm -hmm. um, my experience is once people get rid of that, they just don't really miss it that much. They go and eat that salty soup and they realize, oh, I don't need this excess amount of stimulation anymore. Um, and the same thing with the greasy, fatty products and the fried foods and the things that are so appealing to people when they're addicted. Once they get free of the pleasure trap, they realize, you know, they like the taste of fruits and vegetables and steamed vegetables and potatoes and rice and beans and maybe with herbs and spices without having to get into all the salt and the oil. And they feel good and they function good. So it's a question of, it's not, it's just like alcoholics. People don't go, oh, I liked it much better when I was a blackout drunk, you know, or I really liked it when I was a smoker and I smelled like an ashtray all the time. No, once they get free of the addiction, they say, oh, this is the best thing I ever did. I'm yeah. glad to be free of cigarettes. I'm glad. And this isn't just one more addiction. You can get free of that by eating a whole natural food, whole plant food diet, and realize, okay, yeah, I, I may miss, you know, in, indulging in those behaviors, but the benefit I get is enough to offset that price. You don't know that until you're free of the addiction. Yeah, so so you, you are pro, um, like a vegetarian, would you say vegetarian diet? Or? Well, what I recommend is a whole plant food diet without yeah. the use of salt, oil, and sugar. So you might get up in the morning and have fresh fruit and oatmeal or greens, you may have nuts and seeds. You may have big salads and steamed vegetables and dishes made with potatoes, rice, and beans. So all the whole plant foods, minimally processed whole plant foods. As but, isn't, 
But what about meat? Aren't we aren't we required to eat meat? Isn't isn't that well, something? We're not that... required to eat meat. There's nothing that you can't get adequately uh, from a whole plant food diet. The only nutrient that can be an issue on a vegan diet would be vitamin B12, and that's just because bacteria is our only source of B12. Uh, when you eat meat, of course, you get lots of bacteria, not the least of which is from all the fecal contamination and other stuff that goes along with it. But you can get, uh, uh, with the exception of B12, which is easily uh, corrected supplementally, you can get all the protein, all the essential amino acids, all the vitamins, minerals, fiber that you need from a whole plant food diet without the downside of the animal foods. Right now, just like processed plant foods are a problem, the sugar, the flour products, all these highly processed refined carbohydrates, much of the animal food products that are eaten is highly processed. So the chicken McNuggets and all these uh, fractionated foods, the dairy products, the cheeses, the, they're full of salt, full of all kinds of secondary products, in addition to the biological concentration concerns of animal food. Animals biologically concentrate the toxins from their environment, just like you do, week after month after year. When you eat an animal, you get its entire lifetime accumulation of these products. And so a calorie of plant foods, even commercially raised plant foods, has uh, much less concentration of these various products from heavy metals to pesticide residues, et cetera, than a calorie of animal foods. So if, it's, if your diet is made up of a large percentage of calories coming from animal foods, you're going to be on a very high protein, high fat diet, and we know the downstream consequences of that. Um, what's better is to get a diet where maybe 10% uh, of calories are coming from protein, 15 to 18% of calories from fat, and the balance coming from whole plant fruit complex carbohydrates. That's essentially how you're designed. That's the diet that supports long-term um, improvements in healthy life expectancy. So the people that live a long and healthy life and live till they die tend to be people that are eating these um, uh, high whole plant food uh, type diets that have uh, moderate, uh, appropriate amounts of protein, moderate amounts of fat, and large amounts of complex, uh, complex carbohydrates. Okay, so is would, would you, is that referred to the blue zones? Because I I know that there's some there's some people in Japan or there's there's these areas of the world that that have these yeah these plant based diets and they and they tend to live, you know, upwards of a hundred years old. So it, it's it it is test yeah. Throughout history, you know, most cultures have been dependent on some type of uh, complex carbohydrate, whether it's potatoes or rice or beans or, you know, there are variations depending on where you, where you go in the world and where you go in history. Um, and animal foods have also been included. I'd point out, though, that the animal foods that might have been eaten traditionally were generally a relatively smaller percentage of total calories in the diet. They were, uh, you know, honestly, animal foods are much more expensive foods. They were used as... Uh, as uh, celebratory foods, you know, they had the, the the turkey on Thanksgiving. They had the, you know, uh, animal foods on Christmas and holidays, and they were treats, and they were feast foods, and they were celebratory foods. But we've turned every day into a holiday, you know, three times a day. McDougall talks about having, you know, Christmas for breakfast and Thanksgiving for lunch, and you know, Easter for dinner every day. And as a consequence, the overconsumption of these very rich concentrated foods can lead to problems. Uh, and particularly when you start fractionating and processing animal foods, just like when you fractionate and process plant foods, it, you get a caloric density issue that's very high. And, and we see the results of you all around you. You see what happens to people that do that. People that adopt whole plant food SOS free diets tend to be thinner, have lower cardiovascular and cancer risks, and tend to have uh, a higher healthy life expectancy. And so you know, that's the type of diet that we use clinically. It's what works for us in helping sick people get well. And we believe it's also going to prove to help 
healthy people stay that way. And I'm happy to say that, you know, we've been doing this a long time. We're getting now 30 and 35 year follow-ups on patients. Wow. And one of the most common things that these patients that we've been treating for decades is saying is that, you know, everybody they know is in trouble or dying. In fact, my mother, when she turned 92 years old, she realized that all 52 of her lifelong friends were dead. They had all died. Many of them used to make fun of her and her son's crazy diet that she followed. But she did tell me at 92 that I needed to warn my patients that if they're going to do this diet, make younger friends. And she said, tell them to make much younger friends because even 10 years isn't enough. Because she found even her friends that were 10 years younger, they were only in their 80s, they were still falling apart. So she said to warn my patients, make younger friends. So I'm telling you, if you're going to do this type of whole plant food, that's what diet, make sure you pick healthy and younger friends. So when you get old, there'll still be somebody left that you can inter interact with. Wow. And some of my friends are a little bit hesitant to the idea of fasting. And I guess their, their objection is uh, that, that they're going to lose muscle or something like this. Yeah, is, so is that's that a, a really, really good question, and it is actually a very important issue, and we've just done a study, uh, in fact, with our colleagues at the Mayo Clinic, looking at using a DEXA scanner with the new technology that allows us to do whole body composition analysis. So we're able to look at not only how much fat is lost, but how much visceral fat in particular is lost, and what happens to lean tissue. And here's what we found. Um, when you go on a fast, you lose a bunch of weight. Now, some of that weight is fat, some of it's water, some of it's glycogen, some of it's fiber, and you have like two pounds of glycogen in your, in your muscles. You, you burn that up in the first 48 hours. So you've lost two pounds of glycogen, that's sugar storage. Now, you haven't lost any muscle cells, but you've lost the glycogen storage. That comes back after fasting. So does the water, so does the fiber. And so what happens is you lose a bunch of weight during fasting, and then after fasting, your weight goes back up. But what we found is the weight that you're gaining after fasting is almost exclusively water, fiber, glycogen, and muscle. And what happens is the fat keeps going down. So even though the scale is going up, your body fat is actually continuing to drop. And so uh, we know now that it's a misnomer that you lose weight and you gain it back. Now, if you go back on a greasy, fatty, processed, high-fat diet, of course, you know that, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about coming back off of fast appropriately on whole plant foods. Now, we've also followed these patients at six weeks where they come back and we react. And in fact, fat loss continues, weight, loss, weight gain uh, may continue and stabilize because you have to completely replenish your protein, muscle, fiber, and water that is lost during fasting. And, but the fat itself, fat loss continues. And what's even more exciting, uh, for example, a male that lost a uh, two-week fast, for example, lost 20% of total body fat, but 50, over 50% of visceral fat. So it turns out visceral fat is selectively mobilized and preferentially mobilized, as you'd expect, because it turns out you shouldn't have a lot of visceral fat. That's the fat in, you know, around your belly, it's in your organs. It's put there because there's no place else for the body to put it. But it doesn't want to give it up because it's so valuable to store energy. So, so when you survive. So just to dissect that, so the so the body prefers to burn the fat as opposed to the muscle. Is that's what that's what I'm understanding? If you're in a fasting and resting state. Okay. Now, what happens if you fast and you exercise? Well, there's a, it's a whole different ballgame because what happens when you're resting is your body is able to live almost exclusively on fat. In fact, even the brain itself changes from burning glucose, the main fuel, and that's your main burner of glucose is your brain, burns more than anything else. 
Yeah. And it burns ketones, specifically beta-hydroxybutyric acid, a byproduct of fat breakdown. But let's say you take that same person and you let them be very active and you let them exercise. Well, now, in order, for, in order to get enough fuel to meet the muscle needs for glucose and the brain needs for, for the limited glucose that's still needed, the only place you're going to be able to get that is from a process called gluconeogenesis, which is the breakdown of protein. So if you're more than baseline active, you will burn more protein. And so a person that's exercised physically, they'll lose more weight all right, but they won't lose more fat. They'll lose more protein. So by resting, you maximize fat loss, even though you don't maximize total weight loss. You don't get as dehydrated. You don't burn as much protein. But all we're concerned about is maximum fat loss, minimum protein loss. So if you fast and you're too active, yes, you could run into depletion of some of your protein stores. If you fast and you're uh, passive and you're resting, um, then you minimize protein loss. And that protein is regained very rapidly after fasting. And you maximize fat loss, which continues to go down. Uh, as you recover on an appropriate diet. And, and now, as we publish this data, it's really great because we have 30 subjects where we've done uh, DEXA scans before fasting, after fasting, after follow-up, and then six weeks later. And so we've got some, and it's pretty clear, you know, the, the patterns are very predictable, the data's reliable. Uh, and so as that, as that data comes out, I think that'll put to rest this old wives' tale that, you know, you're burning your protein stores. Now, um, that's, again, only in the fasting state. I want to make clear. If you, if you take people and you're very vigorously active, the picture is going to look completely different. Right. Okay. Makes sense. And will fasting slow down my metabolism? Yes. While you're fasting, metabolic rate slows because your brain doesn't know how long you're going to be fasting. Your brain doesn't know, oh, well, soon there'll be food. Your brain says we need to conserve our resources until spring you know, comes and food is available again. And after fasting, metabolic rate comes back up. And we've had a calorimetry machine here where we're able to actually measure this. And it turns out at about the length of fast feeding, and let's say you have a 10 day fast, on average, it's going to take about 10 days. At that point, your metabolic rate is back to where it was before you were fasting. This idea that metabolic rate permanently slows down is a little bit of a misnomer. It doesn't appear to actually be based in fact. But uh, it seems that way because after fasting, people First of all, they rehydrate and they regain uh, weight quickly. And then if they go on a salty diet, they may even retain fluids, get post-fasting edema. If they're on it, if they've been exercising vigorously, you know, they're good. They can get all kinds of secondary issues. So it looks to them like they're gaining bloat back and fat back if they don't do it properly. Uh, but the people yeah. that actually recover properly, they do just fine. Now, the other issue is fasting also does improve digestive health. The, the five pounds of bacteria living in your gut are completely uh, impacted by fasting. There's a big uh, reduction in total microbial load. The type of strains change after fasting and, and with proper refeeding. So the thousand strains of bacteria you have, live, you have living in your gut are completely different, for example, in plant eaters than meat eaters. They have right. different microflora. And those organisms are living creatures. I mean, they're living, breathing, eating, and defecating in you right now. You've got right. five kinds of creatures pooing inside your intestinal tract. And what they poo inside you depends on what you feed them. If you feed them their natural food of soluble fibers, you get fertilizer. That's where your vitamin K comes from and all these essential nutrients. If you feed them a large amount of animal food, you get TMA, which becomes trimethylamine oxidase, which is probably why meat eaters get so much more colon cancer and heart disease and other problems if they're doing that in excess quantity. So, you know, this diet affects your microbiome profoundly. So does sugar. You know, if you put sugar into the intestinal tract, you get a different effect. 
Same thing with salt. Salt's a powerful preservative. Think about what you use salt for. If you salt your meat, it keeps the meat from spoiling because of, of the antibacterial effect that salt has. Well, when you yeah. put a lot of salt in the intestinal tract, you get an effect on those living creatures. There's an impact. People on yeah. high sodium diets have different microbiomes than people that are on lower sodium diets. So, you know, a little bit in the diet can make a big effect on the microbiome. Wow. And is there any um, cognitive benefit of fasting? Well, we think there is actually. Um, in fact, we published a study. If you go onto our website, uh, you'll find one of the studies was a, a gentleman who came to us, uh, 83 years old, with what they thought was uh, dementia. And actually, it turned out he completely uh, regained his cognitive capacities because it really wasn't dementia. What it was was polypharmacy. He was on medications for diabetes and high blood pressure and joint pain and all kinds of stuff. And because we got on this really radical diet of healthy whole natural foods, he was able to withdraw his medications. And as he withdrew his medications, his cognitive capacity uh, was restored. And uh, you know that actually is not that uncommon. Many people are being misdiagnosed as having cognitive issues that are really just a, a negative effect of uh, polypharmacy. And so eliminating the reason for the polypharmacy is the change in the diet. People are drugged not for their condition so much as their diet. The moment you change the diet, the need for many of these medications is changed. High blood pressure is a good example. You know, people are on up to five different medications trying to regulate their blood pressure. And yet the, the moment you change their diet to a whole plant food SOS free diet, the need for medication begins to drop. And, uh, you know, if you look at our data, we published a study on high blood pressure, 174 consecutive patients, all 174 patients achieved blood pressure low enough to eliminate the need for medication. And when you get off the blood pressure drugs, then the chronic cough, the fatigue, the impotence, and the premature death risks are eliminated because you've gotten rid of the drugs that cause those problems. You know, so much of what's going on ties to the diet that we put in our mouth, our activity, and our sleep. If you control diet, sleep, and exercise, uh, you can largely reverse many of these modern diseases of dietary excess. And all that fasting does is it allows it to be done more rapidly. So it's not that you can't get well just through diet and lifestyle. Do, do the diet and lifestyle. If you can do it well enough, long enough, you get much of the results. Fasting allows people to do it quicker. It's just like alcoholism. You can cure it. Stop drinking. If you can figure out a strategy to not drink, you win. Yeah. overweight stop eating the highly processed foods and the animal foods and you'll lose the weight it's not that easy to do sometimes alcoholics need help and they might need outpatient help or they might need inpatient help and the same thing's true with dietary addictions some people you just teach them this and they stop it and they change the diet and they work through it and it's fine and some people need a little bit more support and they need to work with a doctor or a therapist some people need inpatient care for a week sometimes they need to be there for a month sometimes we need to do it a few times in order to be able to integrate it. You do whatever you have to do to solve the problem. And in the end, if you get well, people don't look back and say, oh, it was too much of a sacrifice to give up my greasy, fatty, salty, processed foods. Yes, it was a sacrifice. The question is, is it worth it? Will you feel that the effort you put out was rewarded by the benefit? Who's the best patients? Highly motivated patients. Who's highly motivated? People facing death, debility, and pain. Pain, debility, and fear of death are the best motivators. That's why most of our patients have, feel like they have no choice. They're willing to do anything, even dangerous and radical things like eat well or exercise or go to bed on time or even fast. You know? And so now we're seeing more healthy people looking to use it preventively. And I think actually that's who's going to get the best long-term results is healthy people using periodic fasting, 
intermittent fasting and a healthy diet every day to prevent the problem rather than treat it after it occurs. Yeah, I love, I love that you mentioned that because, yeah, in, in society, it's, it's, it's about uh, treatment of the problem, not, not preventing the problem. And uh, That's exactly yeah. right. We're spending all of our money treating the leading causes of death, heart disease, cancer, and stroke, not the actual causes of death, the reason yeah. people get heart disease, cancer, and stroke. The reason people get heart disease, cancer, and stroke is largely because of what they put in their mouth and their inability to get off their the couch and the inability to get enough sleep. Diet, sleep, and exercise leads to the heart disease, cancer, and stroke. Yeah. If we put our effort on the actual causes of death instead of the leading cause of death, I think we'd get a lot more bang for our buck. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and is there any, I guess, is there any future? What, what does the future of fasting look like? I know that there's a lot of studying and a lot of research going on at the moment. Is the, Maybe you, you, you might know something about the future of fasting and, and where, it's, where it's going to. Well, what we're doing at the True North Health Center right now, which is really one of the few places in the world doing long-term water fasting. Um, Dr. Walter Longo and others are doing a tremendous amount with intermittent fasting and uh, you know, short-term things people can do on their own. They'll use products like Prolon where they'll be able to do a five-day limited calorie intake and, try, and they get what they call fasting mimicking effects. So they get some of the benefits that you get from long-term fasting without having to do inpatient care and support like we do at the True North Health Center. Um, I think that intermittent fasting has become very popular. There's thousands of medical offices now monetizing uh, Prolon and related products. There's a lot of books and videos and support coming out, movies about intermittent fasting because people it's practical. People can do it. It's simple. It's If it's done appropriately, it's safe for people to do. Longer-term water fasting has a little bit of a problem. Because people are so screwed up, it can be complicated, and it needs to be done in conjunction with history, exam, lab, and monitoring which generally means you know, you're doing it with a doctor that's you know, familiar with the process of unwinding the drugs, dealing with the condition, telling the difference between a problem and a, a healing crisis and a problem. And so I don't think it's going to gain the popularity that intermittent fasting and these things that people can do on their own often yeah. have. But that's okay because what's going to happen is as the research on long-term fasting becomes more apparent, I think it's going to uh, encourage more facilities to open and operate so that fasting can be you know, done uh, affordably in a, in a controlled setting. Uh, and, you know, uh, there's lots of things that aren't uh, convenient and easy, uh, but, but still can be implemented. Uh, I wish that fasting could be done safely without having to have history exam lab and monitoring, but in my experience, it really can't be. And so the longer term fasting needs to be done in a controlled setting. Intermittent fasting can be done by everybody. And if you do the intermittent fasting with the diet, sleep, and exercise, you may not need to do the long-term fasting because you'll get healthy and recover. You know, it's interesting. I've been having an experience since uh, the pandemic. We implemented a telemedicine practice so that people could get access to doctors remotely. Uh, and right. so that's become very popular. We're seeing that double every month. We have a dozen physicians that aren't idiots that can provide decent advice for people. And many of these doctors are working with people while they're waiting to come into the center because we're usually a couple months backlogged. And in those two months of getting people to work remotely, many of them are getting well. And it's really annoying me because, you know, we're trying to interview <laughs> in this hypertensive study. And we've got these people with these tremendous hypertension. But by the time they're ready to come in, they're already better. They're off. <laughs> they don't need to come. And so it's gratifying in one respect because you can see people with support can make these changes. It's yeah. a little frustrating, though, to recruit people for studies, and then they get well before we even do anything. So, you know, what can I say? Like, I guess it's a, it's a good problem to have, I guess. Oh, it's wonderful. 
And we've got these doctors that are gaining more and more experience, and this telemedicine works pretty well. Because, you know, with Zoom, you can actually get a pretty good sense of what's going on with the person. We look at the lab. We can give good advice and support. It's affordable. They don't have to go anywhere. And so that it, that's really, I think, uh, um, going to uh, we're going to see huge expansion of access to experts in these niche hyper health markets to everybody. Because you know, for a small amount of money, people can get uh, a high degree of support uh, right where they sit, right in their home. And so, you know, one of the things that we've done for patients. Uh, including your viewers, is we offer a free phone conversation with me. If they go on our website at healthpromoting.com, fill out the registration forms, which gets me their medical history, they can call. I'll talk to them, no cost, and see if we can direct them, whether it's a local person that can support them, one of our remote doctors that can support them, or answer questions they might have about whether they're a candidate for fasting or you know what it, what it is that we might recommend for them, what direction they need to go in. And that's nice because it doesn't cost them anything. They're able to access it right from their home. They just go on uh, to the website and fill out the stuff. It's pretty simple. And uh, that's worked out really well. And now we're seeing, you know, large numbers of people that really are interested in trying to figure out what can they do that they're not already doing that might make a difference to help them recover their health. All right. Well, uh, th 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 there you go, guys. Uh, there's some uh, – so there's – a website that you can go to and you can speak to Dr. Alan Goldhammer on that one. And I think I might end, I might end the show here. Um, just before I end the show, is, is there any, I, I'm curious to hear of the success stories. Is there any stories that come to mind that you'd like to share with the audience uh, on your journey uh, that you've, that you've been through? Well, you know, we get to see those every day. Uh, you know, it's interesting. Like for example, um, we have a, a residency training for doctors that want to learn to use fasting and diet. They can come as part of their training or after they're out of school, they can come and do a rotation. And one of the most common comments of these doctors is, wow, I've never seen somebody with that condition get well before diabetes. They've never had a type two diabetics achieve normal blood sugar without medication or blood pressure where they've got off the drugs. They just don't ever see that because in medicine, the one guarantee is you'll never get well. They'll, your doctor will promise you, if you have high blood pressure, here, take these drugs. I promise you, you will be on these the rest of your life. You will never recover. You will have high blood pressure that will require medication forever. Same thing with diabetes. You'll never get off the drugs. You'll be sick forever. Um, and that's the promise, that you do what you're told, but you'll never get well. Here, we're saying, well, if you're willing to do radical things like eat better and exercise, you can not only get well, but eliminate the need for medication altogether. And that's not the because in, in, in conventional practice, you know, they just they can only get about 50 percent compliance even with taking drugs. People, it's yeah. very difficult to get. How do we do better? Well, part of it's who we treat. Let's face it. Who wants to come and do a fast and have to make diet change and to, you know, give up their addictions and quit smoking? And nobody, you know, that's not popular. So the people willing to do that are either very smart or very motivated. And so we end up with these highly motivated, self-selected people that will do what they need to do to get well. And that's why it looks like we have very high success rates, but it's because we have very motivated patients. If you try to apply these mm. principles to the general population, we wouldn't have any better yeah. outcomes than anybody else. No, because it's totally dependent on a highly motivated patient. But for highly motivated patients, it's nice that they know they have an option. They don't have to be on those drugs the rest of their life. There is a way out. Yes, it's difficult. Yes, there's sacrifice. Yes, it's a pain in the rear, but it's a it's a worthwhile pain in the rear for those that are willing to do it. No worries. Well, thanks for having. I'm 
very honored to have you on the show, Alan. Um, I'm a big fan of a big fan of your work. I've been following uh, a few of your podcasts. So, um, if I could yeah. just make one more comment, if if people sure. really want to get the essence of this, we do have a book out. It's called The Pleasure Trap. And if they don't want to read, they can get the audio version. If Chef AJ did a great job recording uh, a professionally recorded version of the book, they can listen to it. They can go to Audible. If you read The Pleasure Trap, you'll find it's a very disturbing book because it doesn't tell you what you want to hear. It just tells you what you need to know to get and stay healthy. So if you like to get into this in more depth, read our book. I think you'll find it will be worth your uh, worth the time. Thank you again and uh, enjoy yourself, guys. Thank you.